0: All right, welcome, welcome to the REACH Report. Super excited uh, to have another special guest here, Stormy Siliquini. And so we're excited to kind of talk about today a little bit about AI, sock metrics, and so on. Stormy, it's been a pleasure working with you. I know you for a long time tell tell us a little bit about you know your journey into cybersecurity and 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 how you you got to where you are now
1: yeah absolutely uh pleasure pleasure to be aboard um i think my journey for cybersecurity kind of started maybe a cliche way um looking back to when i was a kid i loved all of like the super cheesy hacker movies you know black gloves black screen green text flying down the keyboard um when I was super young um, and then I started getting really interested in computers from a young age. Um, And when I was around the time of like early high school, I started uh, taking programming classes and learning how to program, um, just as a way of kind of learning more about the industry, learning more about computers. And I always had the intention of going into the cybersecurity industry. Um, Then uh, after a bit of college, I ended up uh, going to a code school and taking an internship at a Freedom Security Alliance at the time, now called uh, The Great Fit Cybersecurity and um, ended up working my way really, really far up and just learning a ton along the way.
0: Oh, awesome, Yeah. That's, that's great. And, and obviously you've got to play a lot of different roles, everything from analyst to a, C, uh, a CISO role, Tell us a little bit about your stint uh, as a CISO um, for the city of Irvine, what that was like and kind of the experience you got there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I ended up becoming the CISO at Irvine um, because I was working for uh, an MSP doing uh, IT and cybersecurity for the county of San Diego. I was a security engineer on their threat management team. Um, and they had a need desperately for some security leadership on their city of Irvine contract. Uh, I said, you know, what the heck, I'll try it out for a little bit. And um, I ended up going up there and then uh, getting offered a, a position long time and uh, or a, a permanent position. And that was probably one of the most valuable experiences in my career. Um, I came in, they had a lot of IT infrastructure in place, um, some goods, some some areas of opportunity for sure, but they didn't really have a consistent cybersecurity program. So uh, learning to inject cybersecurity into all of their uh, infrastructure processes and their application processes and really aligning to the business, um, you know, trying to show that uh, the cybersecurity doesn't always need to be saying no to every component of the business. It can be cohesive, it can be valuable. Um, not just in mitigating risk, but in also, you know, marketing collateral, right? Being able to tell uh, your customers, which in the case of the city was the citizens, that their data is safe. Um, so understanding risk from the perspective of the business uh, really started for me when I was at Irvine, and I I'd like to think I bring all those lessons uh, back with me to uh, to Fit Cyber.
0: Awesome. That, that, that's great. So now that you've kind of been in the role a little bit, um, one of the hot topics is artificial intelligence and how um, we've already started seeing in the wild that there has been artificial intelligence used in, in, in various aspects of trying to breach organizations. Mm-hmm. Like, as you've kind of started working on this, looking into this, what do you see happening What are some of the big, you know, gotchas and challenges? How is this going to change the threat landscape for organizations?
1: Uh Uh-huh. So I I do think there's some level of doomerism around AI, but I don't think that it's uncalled for. Um, We just need to be looking at the the immediate threats that we're going to see in the cyber industry. And so much of it is around... Data and using that data to bolster attack vectors. So um, we've, seen, we've said this for you know, over a decade that the biggest threat to an organization is their people, right? There's not a lot of traditional, you know, hacking past the firewall uh, groups that will lead to a major compromise. Usually an initial attack vector into a network is like a phishing email or a pretext calling, right? And AI and the power of data just increases that capability tenfold, right? So um, I think, uh, you know, people are going to have personalized neural nets. Uh, Look at things like ChatGPT, but imagine if those transformers were trained off of a specific person's data. What could you then do? And we're already seeing this technology for consumers, right? Apple just announced a couple days ago that they're going to start doing, like, FaceTime calls where... They're using an AI-generated version of you to you know, be your face on FaceTime while you have their new VR goggles on. Right now, you can tell that that's kind of fake. It's uncanny valley, but we're probably only a couple of years away from that looking totally real. So what happens when a social engineer has a, a fake, like essentially a deep fake of you, and they're using it to compromise your employees or your friends or your families? How do we protect ourselves against that? Well, it's all about getting back to the basics, security, awareness, training, multi-factor authentication, um, you know, really good password hygiene, those kinds of things and being ready for, for some really crazy changes for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just, it's funny. I, I like just last week I heard, a, like, a, a Frank Sinatra cover of like modern songs that was obviously an AI generated Frank Sinatra voice. But it really sounded like it was funny because it really sounded like Frank Sinatra singing mm-hmm. covers to modern songs. And I was like, man, that that is pretty suppressive and it is scary when it comes to social engineering.
1: Absolutely. I mean, everyone's putting all this content, all this data out there. Like e- even these podcasts, right? You know, it's awesome to be able to do them. But what if an attacker is, as we speak, training, you know, a deep fake off of uh and Stormy based on, you know, posting this content. So there's, there's certainly going to be a lot to, to watch out for and um, there there are common uh, I don't know if they're necessarily you know cyber attacks, but there are common scams where someone will call you pretending to be like uh, a cartel from South America and they'll say like, uh, we kidnapped your daughter or we kidnapped your your grandmother and if you don't pay us X amount of money in the next 30 minutes, um, we're going to kill her. We're going to do something really bad to her, right? Um, with the power of artificial intelligence and having all this content that people post every day on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram, um, that you know, that attacker is going to be able to say, "Look, listen to your grandma. We have her here, and it's just going to be an AI." Um, and a lot of people are are going to get scammed um, because you know attackers take advantage of urgency and they take advantage of of fear. So. Um, really educating your users, your friends, your family on these kinds of attacks and what can happen, Um, fostering what I like to call healthy skepticism, right? So, you know, try not to be paranoid. It can consume you. But also every time you see anything, um, you know, every interaction with digital media, having a little bit of skepticism, um, you know, double checking one more time is always going to be valuable.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's going to change it, you know. Like right now, and we we've been encouraging anybody that you know, especially with accounting departments, anyone that has the ability to to, to do any kind of wire transfer, um, any kind of payment. That if it's not a vendor that they're regularly paying to the same account over and over again, um, that it's always a verbal a verbal confirmation and. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with a with a familiar voice, but you know, obviously, even that's going to change as the AI mm. gets more advanced and can duplicate voices to a further degree.
1: Yeah, I expect forms of multi-factor authentication to be used for business-to-business transactions. Right, an accounting team reaches out to you and says, "Hey, we need to change the checking account you're sending your your money to." Great, you know, pull out your authenticator app, and I'm gonna send a code to the to the phone we have on file those kinds of things are going to be really important but you know there's so many different vectors to consider that there's going to be growing pains and there's going to be compromise
0: yeah absolutely um i i i totally hear that so let me ask you this like what is going on from for security teams, 24-7 cybersecurity teams. Obviously, we're running this 24-7 cybersecurity operations center. What are the current metrics, like the KPIs for the team? And mm-hmm. how is that going to change with what's happening in the industry?
1: So this, this is going to be a, a pretty consistent evolution for both um, external, like third-party teams, MSSPs, and internal teams um, for... For well over a decade, the number one metric that everybody looked at for a SOC or a security team was mean time to respond. And it's it's a really good metric and it had been for a really long time, which is basically just if there is an incident, you know, it comes in to your, your SIM platform or it comes in from your endpoint antivirus or whatever tool you have, um, how long before an analyst is actually investigating it, how long until the eyes are on glass. Um, and that that still is really important, right? You want to make sure you have the staff to respond to to incidents when they occur. But as the security industry evolves, you know the rest of the industry evolves around it. And just having eyes on glass quickly isn't isn't really enough anymore. And it's going to be um, it's going to mean less and less in the long run, right? Or we're seeing um, attacks happen, you know, some form of compromise to a network, and in seconds data is being exfiltrated or drives are being encrypted for ransomware attacks Um, or, you know, someone's Office 365 account gets compromised with a phishing email and within seconds, SharePoint data is being exfiltrated, right? So um, the industry is going to trend away from that mean time to respond metric to how long does it take before the people, process and technology combined together start to contain compromise, right? So we need to leverage automation. We need to leverage all of our technology stacks in order to take some form of immediate action that's going to buy the analyst's time to actually, uh, you know, more holistically contain, eradicate, and recover from the compromise. So that's what I want to know the most. And you know, for Fit Cyber, that's one thing we're investing heavily in is, yes, we have great analysts and we're gonna to continue to have great analysts, but building up that engineering talent to get the maximum amount of value from our tool sets and consistently evaluate new tool sets that are gonna lend themselves towards automation and immediate response is so critical. Um, and overall in the industry, I- I'm expecting a pretty one-to-one uh, ratio of um, you know, maybe less analyst time responding to incidents, but all of that time is gonna get translated into more engineering time to extract more value out of the tools. And just like the attackers are gonna start using things like you know, transformers, artificial intelligence to carry out attacks, we need to equally leverage that technology to defend ourselves. And that's gonna be really big in the industry. It's the reason AI has been a buzzword in cyber for I feel like a a lot longer than it's been in the general industry. Um, And it's because it unlocks a lot for us, but we need to be very uh, you know meticulous and intentional about how we go about implementing it
0: yeah, de- definitely that that makes a lot of sense. So you know, what do you think that how how does that play into you know uh, I guess the customer experience? an IT department's mm-hmm. experience working with a cyber team when when they're, like, as these developments start to happen, as they start to, you know, have to make these changes to try and keep up with with the changing landscape?
1: Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, I don't think the, the concept SOC as a service is going to exist in the same way that it exists right now, if it exists at all, because gone are the days where um, an internal CISO or an internal CIO is looking for an outsourced team to investigate incidents and um, you know, just kick them over the fence or, or escalate them to a tier two or, or tier three kind of thing. right? So there, there's going to be value for that in some capacity. But if I'm a CIO, I'm looking for a team that can handle the entire stack of incident detection and response. So I want them tuning the tool sets. I want them leveraging automation to contain breaches. I don't wanna get woken up in the middle of the night to say, hey, you know, log into Office 365 and lock this account. I wanna wake up in the morning to an email that says, hey, we detected this account was compromised. Um, our, our automation took care of it. Here's what you need to do going forward. And let's have a conversation about how we can prevent this in the future. Um, and then that's even gonna tie into your your data privacy and your compliance, really more overall management of your security posture. Um, you know, it's there'll be less siloed services. The companies that really rise above are the companies that do it all and um, enable access to a full security team, just like the the massive organizations have, right? Just just kind of SOC as a service isn't really going to cut it anymore
0: yeah that makes sense. That makes sense um how is it how is this now gonna kind of like if if we start thinking of this this new change if an i t department is looking for a partnership or building their own mm-hmm. what 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 are the things that they should be looking for specifically
1: so First things first, they need a a consultant that's going to help them truly understand their risks and and then go from there, right? Um, Depending on the size of the organization and what vertical they're in is going to dictate a lot of their security program. So it's important to work with a provider that can help you implement general best practice and help you um, mitigate, you know, common general business risks, but, there's so many changes with regulatory frameworks. Um, you know how we manage data privacy. So, you know, for example, I think uh, Florida just like today or yesterday, they they signed into law a new bill of rights for for uh, data privacy. Um, you know, along the lines of things like CCPA and GDPR. Um, so, the the providers that organizations need to be looking for need to help them understand risk put into practice or you know, implement general best practices around cybersecurity, but also can help them align with many evolving regulatory and compliance frameworks that are just gonna keep changing more and more.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then how's data privacy fitting into this?
1: So um, the changes in data privacy regulations are kind of coming at a nice time. Um, I would have liked to see them happen a bit earlier, but within the context of AI coming to be, data privacy is so much more critical because every single piece of data you you post on any social media platform, um or even you know data tied to your your browser use and your phone use, that all can go into neural nets, right, and help them understand you. Um you know it'll be used by businesses to serve ads and uh, to optimize different products. And it will also be used by attackers to carry out more advanced um, uh, attacks. So data privacy is really critical and it's good to see some regulation going into play. Um, I think a lot of the the frameworks are more of just a start. We'll probably need to see um, much more uh, aggressive policy as we go along, but end users, need to understand that, uh, they need to kind of empower themselves to control their data. Uh, a common, um, a common saying, I can't remember who, who initially said it, but it was something to the effect of, um, if you're not paying for something and and you don't know what the product is, you are the product, Mm, I'm referring to your data. That's definitely true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it makes, it makes sense. Um, And I think we're seeing a lot of organizations, they kind of know about the data privacy. It's Mm -hmm. it's different for organizations that are under compliance that are being forced. And then you Mm -hmm. have this large group of organizations that maybe they don't have anyone auditing them. So maybe it's like, you know, kind of some kind of general compliance, but they're not really familiar with it. They're not adhering to it. Um, and then they start to kind of have risk that they haven't maybe even know they have, Mm -hmm. but they could find themselves in a situation with a lawsuit, a duty of care situation, and potentially data breach as well. How should organizations, you know, start if they're, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of easy for like, let's say it's a financial advisor, they're under SEC, Mm. It's it's under HIPAA, but let's say you're some, you know, something else. You're not necessarily one of those. How, how do you kind of start to like steer your uh, organization in a compliant manner and get to, you know, Mm. some basic compliances that is going to protect you in a duty of care situation or a lawsuit or, Mm. or just best practices to kind of start building, off of,
1: yeah. So, I think the number one thing I would recommend is starting with um, general frameworks that are very adaptable. So, you look at um, some of the the NIST frameworks. You look at CIS. Um, they have a lot of components to data privacy that uh, regulations actually borrow from uh, when they get drafted. You know, so a lot of stuff within within NIST. Um, you know, it'll find its way into things like GDPR and CCPA. So implementing general best practice will mean that when regulation finally does get put into place, um, you're not building out a a security program or a data privacy program. You might just be, you know, updating some policies and procedures, uh, you know, putting some things into place in terms of how you respond to uh, right to be forgotten requests or, uh, you know, any other data requests from consumers. Um, And then the, the starting point when you make the decision to put in uh, data controls is really mapping your entire data management lifecycle. And it seems like a really basic thing, um, but it, it's very rare that I come into organizations that want things like data loss prevention, and they have any sort of data management lifecycle in place from you know how is data created and by whom, um, how is data classified? How do we handle data or delete data based on its classifications? What security controls do we have around it? Um, that kind of more foundational stuff isn't even in place. But if you have that really robust cycle and really strong classification and, and controls around it, it'll be so much easier to adapt when um, you know the the regulatory hammer does actually come down.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And, and um, we're seeing a lot of states, New York, California, starting to get, you know, they're kind of leading the charge in the United mm. States. Obviously Europe, I think was even ahead of them with a lot of their regulation. How is that starting to trickle down? I think, I think in California, they started with, is it companies 50 million and above that are kind of net under that requirement?
1: Um, there's there's different tiers of requirements, but I don't expect them to last long. I, in a very short period of time, I expect even you know a one-person company to have some level of responsibility. Yeah. At the very least, to be able to show that you did as much due diligence as a person can do, right, an individual. Um, even if other states don't immediately follow with their own regulations, um, the people are going to start being empowered, right? So if you're a user in California and you know every single time you go to a website, you can decide what, what kind of tracking they can do it and what cookies they can have. Um, and you have the right to request any of your data on any of the websites that you use. Those people, when they go to other states you know, or other places, why would they want to use services that are still harvesting all of their data and selling it to the highest bidder um, You know, so I, I expect there to be pressure from the masses that will result in a lot of companies following suit before they necessarily have to. And I've even had companies come up to me um, and say, "Hey, we're really worried about CCPA." And I'll ask them, you know, "Okay, well, you know, what what services are you offering in California? You know, what's your website doing or uh, things like that?" And they're like, "Oh, we don't have any co- clientele in California. We're just worried about it." And that mindset is going to become more and more prevalent throughout the industry because people just aren't going to put up with, uh, you know, with being a commodity anymore.
0: Yeah. I mean, that makes, makes, it makes total sense. So, um, you know, if, if somebody's listening in and they're, you know, running an internal it team, where do you suggest they start? Um, -hmm. maybe they've kind of done what they feel some of the basics, like, endpoint protection or something like that but they really haven't built out any kind of monitoring things like that mm. what, where they haven't done penetration testing or any kind of vulnerability scanning on a regular basis where should an organization kind of start and and mm. work towards what 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 do you feel is the right approach if you were to walk into an organization
1: mm. So from a a dollar to risk standpoint, you know, what's the most amount of risk I can mitigate for my budget? Doubling down on end users is absolutely critical. How do we protect their accounts? How do we train them to spot phishing um, and other scams? You know, that's super critical and a lot of the controls in place don't cost anything, right? Things like multi-factor authentication. We've been yelling about it forever, but um, it just gets more and more important with the evolution of the industry.
0: Right. And most people I think are on Office 365. They can even use just to start the built-in multi-factor the- at no additional cost.
1: Exactly. Um, orgs, you know, object to it for various reasons. You know, it's a pain and I hate it too, right? I, every time I log into anything, I have to pull out my phone, but it's, it's free and it helps so much um, with so many different risks. Yeah, um, I, I do continue. have a
0: tip. I do have a tip for anybody listening that has um, Office three sixty five and you enable multi factor authentication. Because I we we definitely have seen this breach happen before. So the organization puts in Office three or turns on multi factor within three sixty five, and they still have somebody breach the network, and they're like, "Oh, I never got the alert." Well, there's legacy protocols still enabled in their Office 365 tenant by default. Examples are IMAP and uh, POP. And so even if you have multi-factor authentication on, if you have not disabled the legacy protocols, which you have to intentionally do, uh, multi-factor can be bypassed by a criminal connecting through a legacy protocol. So. If you are enabling the Office 365 multi-factor authentication, make sure to also turn off legacy protocols as well. Otherwise, it can be bypassed and that's pretty frustrating.
1: Absolutely, and even if legacy protocols have been disabled, and I do think Microsoft is starting to deprecate some of them or you don't even have a choice. Um, even things like uh, app passwords, which might, might not be a, a term people have heard recently, but um, essentially, you know, logging into Outlook or another application that connects to your Office 365 account, that application gets a dedicated, you know, credential for continued authentication. Um, legacy app passwords. Not only can they be used to bypass multi-factor authentication, but even after you've removed them, um, without hard forcing logouts of those apps, we've seen actual compromise happen. Um, so yeah, it's it's really good that you mentioned that.
0: And well, I appreciate it. Thanks for being on, Stormy. Uh, this is very insightful. I, I think it gave us a lot to to talk about with um, compliance, duty of care, how the SOC is changing, and and things organizations can do. So so I appreciate it. If anyone wanted to have a conversation with you, uh, what what is the best way people could get a hold?
1: Absolutely. Um. Uh. Just just shoot me an email. Uh. We'll provide my uh, my email address. It's silaqueenie at fitcybersecurity Um. And I'd love to uh to get a call.
0: Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you, everyone. We uh thank you everyone for participating as well. And have a, a wonderful rest of your day.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.